Welcome to Sabbath School Study Hour. I'm your teacher for today, and I am Pastor Aaron Cruz. I'm a pastor here at the Granite Bay Hilltop Seventh-day Adventist Church. Well, before we get started with the lesson, I want to share with you today's free uh, study lesson. It's entitled Purity and Power. If you want this study lesson, it covers the topic of baptism. And if you want it, you can just call 866 788 3966. That's 866 study more. And you need to just simply ask for offer number 121. That's number 121. If you live in the United States of America, you can text SH052 240544. If you live outside of the United States in Canada, if you want this lesson, you'll need to go to study.aftv.org forward slash SH052. So, now moving on to our lesson for the day. We are covering lesson number five found in this quarter's lesson, uh, and it's entitled Horizontal Atonement, the Cross and the Church horizontal atonement. And what we're going to be covering today is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Verses 11 through the end of the chapter. I really, really do like the name of the lesson entitled Horizontal Atonement. What we studied last week in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, although the lesson wasn't entitled this, you could have entitled it vertical atonement. You see, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians covered how the individual, right, how the, uh, the Gentile believer, how the, the, the Christians in Ephesus, how they were once separated from God, dead in the world spiritually, but then Jesus came and gave them grace and brought new life to them, saving them and making them a new creation. Then, when we get to verse 11, through the end of the chapter, what we see, building off of that vertical, right, that from man to God connection and reconciliation, we see a horizontal atonement, meaning a horizontal reconciliation with others and how we interact with others. So, what we actually see here, turning to the screen, is that they... Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and then verses 11 through 22 are actually structured in a parallel form. Verses 1 through 3 talk about the Ephesians before they came to Christ and they were spiritually dead. In verses 11 through 12, it talks about the Gentiles and how they were spiritually dead, but they were alienated. They were cut off. They were separate from the followers of God, the people of God, the Israelites. Then we have, in verses 4 through 7, the solution is given to the problem, and that is Jesus Christ supplying grace for those 
who uh, believe and new life, bringing them life from the dead. Then we have in verses 13 through 18, we see a reconciliation, that Jesus provides reconciliation to the believers. Then we find in the last segment of this structure is they, there is a result, a subsequent result uh, to the problem achieved through the solution. In verses 8 through 10, the result is, is that, they were, that they are new creatures. They are created for good works, right? Which God uh, foreordained that they should do. And then in verses 19 through 22, we see there is this fellowship that all believers have in common, whether they are Jew, Gentile, Greek, uh, male, female, all become one and are part of this new family of God and are built up into this new temple. We see three main analogies that are given in this section. We have um, a new person, which God promises that um, these believers will become, right? Formerly, they were two groups. Jew and Gentile, but then God through the cross creates a new person. Then there is a new family, a new household. We all become members of this new household, this new family of God. And then the last analogy that's given in this section is that all of God's people become a living temple, a dwelling place for God. Paul here writing to the Ephesians in his letter really likes to give different analogies about the Christian experience. A body, part of the body of Christ, right? A temple of God, the armor of God, which we will get to in chapter six. But in the, this short section, these are the three focal points that Paul uses as an illustration of this new community of believers. So let's go ahead and dive into the text, starting with verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Okay, let's break this down here for a moment. What we see here is that Paul is saying, hey, look, you guys are Gentiles, meaning you are not ethnically by birth Jews, Israelites, right? And those who were born into the Israelite faith, into an Israelite family, a Jewish family, they looked down upon you, right? They called you the uncircumcision, the, the, the people who lived in the other nations. You were Gentiles, right? What the, we see Paul set up here is that there was this hostility, right? There was this name calling, right? The Jews would look at the, the, the Gentiles and say, oh, you are the uncircumcised. You don't have the sign of the covenant. You don't have that, um, that identity of a child of God. What we have um, here is William Barclay writes and he summarizes well the hostility that the Jews had towards the Gentiles. We read in his commentary on Ephesians, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. They said that the Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell and that God loved only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to give help to a Gentile woman in childbirth, for that would be to bring another Gentile into the world. The barrier between Jews and Gentiles was absolute. If a Jew married a Gentile, the funeral of that Jew was carried out. 
Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Even going into the house of a Gentile made a Jew unclean. Before Christ, the barriers were up. But after Christ, the barriers came down. This is the condition of the Jews' viewpoint, perspective on the Gentiles, right? Not a pretty picture. I don't think you would like to be treated as if you were a nobody, right? But this is what the Gentiles were, were, were viewed as. Then Paul gets to verse 12, where we read that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Here Paul gives a description, right? And he outlines the various points of their condition that they were in. Now, do you think the Gentile, before they became a Christian, thought of themselves as being excluded from God, set apart, you know, are separate from the people of God? Not exactly, but it was once they became Christians and followers of God that then they could look back at their condition and then see, whoa, I've come from such a far away place to be drawn near to God. Notice we read in, um, oh yeah, ver notice it says in verse 11, to remember, right? Paul says that they are to remember their previous condition. Now, we read in this newer commentary by Constantine Campbell, and they write, the Gentiles, however, probably did not perceive that problem themselves when they were in their pre-Christ state. They didn't really reckon, they didn't, you know, realize that they were lost like that. Not being Jewish was not normally a problem that kept Gentiles up at night. So Paul's remember may well encourage a re-remembering, to remember their past in a new way. Now that they are in Christ, these believers are able to reflect back on their previous existence with new eyes. And they are only able to grasp the privileges of their new status in Christ by first appreciating how far from those privileges they once stood. And so those privileges that they did not have were the following to summarize. They were uncircumcised, right? They did not bear physically the seal of God's people. They were separated from Christ, right? They were not part of the lineage that gave birth to the Messiah, to Jesus. They were excluded, alienated from citizenship in Israel, from the people of God. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, right? The covenant made to Abraham, the covenant made to David, so on and so forth. They, they were not included in those covenants. They had no hope in the world. Paul elsewhere said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that we should not mourn as those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, that, <clears throat> that we too who are in Christ will be resurrected as well. But they did not have the hope of the resurrection as do Christians. They were without God in the world, right? These six points are things that Paul says you need to remember formerly this is how you were. But then something happened. Now, looking at the, the 
the things that the Jews had, Paul comments elsewhere about the benefits, the advantages that being born as an Israelite gave to them. Notice in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we read, What advantage, Paul asks, has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. Oracles of God meaning they were given the words of God. They were given the Holy Scriptures, Genesis through Malachi, what we call the Old Testament. They called the Scriptures. They called the revelation of God to them, revealed through the history of their people. We then read in Romans chapter 9 that the Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. You see, the Jewish nation had all of these benefits, right? They were born into a, a, a people group that they had the scriptures, they had the revelation of the character of God. They had the, the, the Pentateuch, the, the law of God, the law of Moses. They had the history of God's leading in their past. These were all benefits to them. But unless the individual Israelite, unless the individual Jew applied for themselves these benefits and said, I'm accepting personally God as my Savior, all of these things were useless to them, right? What we discover when we read the Old Testament and especially when we get into the New Testament, the people of Israel were supposed to be missionaries to the neighboring nations. Their privileges came with the responsibility to reach the Gentiles. You see, the Israelites were given the word of God, not to keep to themselves, but they were to share it with the neighboring nations around them. They were supposed to learn the oracles of God and then share them with the Gentiles to be missionaries to them. Within the very writings of the Jews themselves, they would have read in Genesis 12 that God was, to, that God was going to make a covenant, that God made a covenant with Abram so that he, that through Abram, he would be a blessing to the whole world. The Israelite nation were, were supposed to be a nation of priests to all of the world to represent God and his love to a lost world. But unfortunately, they lost sight of this God-ordained mission and they held the scriptures to themselves and they did not uh, regularly and consistently do a good job at sharing the gospel with others. But we read where Paul writes, continuing on to verse 13. He says, But now in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What we see here multiple times, we have the blood of Christ. Then in the next verse, it highlights the body of Jesus, the body of flesh. Then in verse 16, through the cross. Here we have a spotlight put upon Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, his body hanging on the cross. 
It's when Jesus came that he set right the understanding that all people, Jew, Gentile, male, female, black, white, rich, poor, free, slave, all peoples were supposed to um, receive the message that God loves them and that God came to die for them. It's at the cross, it's with the Christ event that Paul says it be, has now become crystal clear that God is no respecter of persons, that God wants all people to come into his fold. Notice here a parallel passage. There are a few passages in scripture that we find very similar to what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. One of them we find in Hebrews 10. Notice some of the parallels. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, there it is, the blood of Jesus that provides access to God, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, right? Focusing on his flesh, his crucifixion. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What we see here is this parallel. Well, once those who were far off are now to be brought near. In this section, we see this as a consistent pattern, right? He talks about those who were far off from Christ who are now brought near, right? There is a parallel that we see between who they once were then, formerly, once were alienated from God and his people, but now you've been brought near, right? This is what we read throughout this passage. This is a reminder to us today that we are to remember, as Paul encouraged the Ephesian church, we are to remember that we used to be far away from God. We used to be alienated from him. But now, after we have accepted Jesus into our life, we are brought near, right? We should spend time thinking in our own lives about what we used to be like and now the privileges and the responsibility that we have now that we have given ourselves to Jesus and receive the salvation that was provided as a free gift of grace accessed through those who believe. Now, let's continue on with uh, Ephesians 2, verses 14 and onward. Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now, we'll come back to in a moment the law of commandments contained in ordinances, but what I want you to see looking at this passage, I focused here on the words peace and being made one, right? Notice again the text, made both one one new man from the two, and then the next verse, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. 
for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So over and over and over again, we see that God says where formerly there were two groups of people, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, and the surrounding nations. The Jews were supposed to be missionaries reaching out to the Gentiles, the nations around them, but they ultimately failed in doing this. But Jesus came as the ultimate missionary and he made clear the true purpose of Israel. And it was to bring near to God those who were far away. And to create out of what once was two groups of people, God says, uh, Paul says, that there is now one person. There is a new creation of people, right? Not Jew or Gentile, uh, free or slave. Paul, notice what he says in Galatians chapter 3, echoing this same sentiment. In verse 26, we read, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul, in a beautiful passage, very uh, commonly quoted within Christianity, he's saying, look, if you belong to Jesus, there is no hierarchy. There is no person who is greater than anyone else. It doesn't matter your sex, male, female. It doesn't matter your economic status, rich or poor. It doesn't matter your ethnic heritage, Jew or Gentile. In Christ, if you give yourself to Jesus, you are part of the body of believers. Furthermore, notice in verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You become part of the people of Israel. All of those who were once far off, alienated from the covenants of God, become members of the household of God and have access to all of those covenants by simply believing in Jesus. Amen. Now, I focused and I highlighted in these previous verses the word peace, right? Three times, if you look, once in verse 13, once in verse 14, and once in verse 17, peace, peace, peace. He is our peace, making peace. He preached peace to you who were far off, that would be the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that would be the Israelites. The Israelites still needed to have peace preached to them, and they needed to accept Jesus for themselves, not relying upon their ethnic heritage. But I love the emphasis here on peace, 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 especially verse 13, which says that Jesus, he is our peace. Not only does Jesus bring peace, not only does he offer peace, but Jesus himself is peace. I love that language. If you're looking in this world of chaos for peace, peace is a person. Peace is Jesus, and when you have him in your life, you have peace. Paul likely found this, this, this language of Jesus being our peace echoed in the prophecy of the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, where we read, For unto us a child is born, 
Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And for all of those who are followers of the Prince of Peace, all of those who are citizens of the kingdom of the Prince of Peace, they become peacemakers themselves. Those who accept the peace of God will see that peace being, uh, being applied to those around. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, in the Beatitudes. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? Jesus came to make peace with the world and those who accept Jesus are to, through the peace given them, are to make peace with those around them. And this is the focus that Paul is saying. Look, Jesus made peace with us. There is vertical atonement. Now there needs to be horizontal atonement. Go and make peace with others. Go and be reconciled. Now, notice in verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. This language Paul gets from Isaiah 57, verse 19, where we read, Isaiah prophesies, Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Right? There's very little you can say that is new sometimes in the New Testament. But the authors, Paul, Jesus himself, are always referring back to what we call the Old Testament, but what they would have simply called the Scriptures, the oracles of God. Noticing that, hey, all of these things were already prophesied back in the day. Now, when we look closer at Isaiah 57, verse 19, if we back up a few verses, we get to verse 15. And we see what qualifies someone to be... Uh, part of this kingdom of peace. Notice in Isaiah 57, verse 15, we read, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This is what qualifies someone to be part of the Israel of God. This is what qualifies someone this is the evidence that someone is ready to accept Jesus as their Savior. If they have a contrite, a repentant, a humble heart, are you willing to humble yourself before Jesus as Jesus humbled himself to save you? These are the people that Jesus is looking for, not those who are hyper-intelligent, not those who are super-rich, all that God is looking for is a heart, a spirit that's willing to learn, willing to listen, and willing to surrender itself to Jesus. Amen? Now, in what ways did Jesus, when he came, bring peace? In what ways did he tear down the prejudices that existed amongst many of God's people? Uh, John Fowler writing in a commentary on the book of Ephesians, I really like how he begins how Jesus made peace. Notice, he writes, 
Consider how Jesus destroyed some of those walls in his life, teachings, and death. The story begins even before his birth. Observe his genealogy. Fond of preserving their pedigrees, the Jews set great value on purity of lineage. A priest was expected to produce a pure pedigree back to Aaron, his wife to at least five generations. To such a pedigree conscious people, Matthew's gospel gives the genealogy of Jesus that proclaims the Savior to be not a parochial Messiah, that means a local Messiah, but a universal Redeemer whose mission is to restore the original design of the Creator. Matthew mentions in his genealogy four names in the ancestry of Jesus. Bathsheba, a Hittite, not a Jew by birth. Ruth, a Moabite, not a Jew by birth. Tamar and Rahab, Canaanites. Many of the Canaanites warred against the Israelites. All women, all Gentiles, all sinners. Bethlehem's crib affirms that in biblical anthropology, there shall be no male or female, no Jew or Gentile, but only God's children. Amen? That is such a beautiful thought that even in the genealogy of Jesus, right? Sometimes you, you, know, you may think, oh, you know, your heritage, you came from this family and this is a pure family and they're not, they're, there's no sketchy, there's no skeletons in their closet. There's no, you know, sketchiness in their past history. But no, Jesus came through a lineage that speckled with sketchiness, right? You have Rahab, uh, Tamar, Bathsheba, Ruth, right? These various people were not part by birth of the Israelite nation. These people, Jesus says, can still be redeemed. And when Jesus came and began and he grew up and he began his ministry, what do we see Jesus doing? We see him preaching to the Jews, yes, but we see him also preaching to the Gentiles. Jesus was no respecter of person. He went and he mingled with sinners. He ate with uh, the Gentiles. He healed all who were willing to come to him and recognize in him that he was the son of God, the Messiah. He healed the son of the Roman centurion. He, he, he healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus did not care about your ethnicity Jesus did not care about your status. He came to all who were of a poor and contrite spirit. The question that we need to ask ourselves today is this. What prejudices might you be clinging to that are contrary to the message of peace and reconciliation that Christ came to bring? This is what we all need to ask ourselves as we're reading these passages. Am I holding on to racism, resentment, bitterness towards other people that are different than me, whether it be gender, race, economic status? It doesn't matter. We all struggle with these feelings of pride and putting ourselves above others and comparing ourselves to others. But when we read these passages, we see that Jesus set the example. He tore down barriers. He showed us that we are not to look down upon other people, that we are to take out the, 
plank that's in our own eyes before we remove the speck that's in our brother's eyes, in our brother and sister's eyes. We are to love our enemies, pray for those who spitefully use us and resent us. There is to be no bitterness in the heart of the Christian. And if there is, Jesus says, bring that to the foot of the cross so that I can forgive, that I can heal, and that I can empower you to be unified to your brothers and sisters. Now, let's circle back to verse 14 and take a look at this phrase, the middle wall of separation. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. What would have been what came to mind to the Ephesians when Paul wrote these words, the middle wall of separation? Well, a few things could have come to mind. One of them likely could have been the wall that was present in the temple in Jerusalem. You see, in the temple in Jerusalem, there was this court, there was a courtyard. And in the courtyard, there was the courtyard for the Gentiles and a courtyard for the Jews. And there was a sign that was posted and it was written in Greek and Latin to make sure that the Gentiles could read it. And it said there was a wall, a wall of partition there with a sign that said, this, oh, by the way, archaeologists had discovered one of these signs in 1871. Archaeologists discovered uh, the, the writing here in Greek of what um, Josephus had previously written centuries earlier. And uh, you probably, unless you know Greek, don't know what this says. <laughs> so here I will provide the English translation. Here is the temple warning inscription. Let no one of any other nation, that is a Gentile, come within the fence and barrier around the holy place, that is within the courtyard that belonged to the Jews. Whoever will be taken doing so will himself be responsible for the fact that his death will ensue. Whoa, talk about a wall of separation. Talk about a, a sign that literally says, if you come any closer... If you try to have access to the temple of God, to the people of God, your death will be on your own shoulders. But this is the wall, one of the walls that Jesus came to tear down. When Jesus declared in Matthew's gospel, in John's gospel, it is finished. In Matthew's gospel, we read that there was a great earthquake and the temple veil was torn in two where God made it clear that he said, no, no more are these ceremonial uh, laws, no more are these, uh, these differences between Jew and Gentiles, no longer do they matter, no longer are they relevant, but all people can freely come into the presence of God. Paul would have been very well acquainted with this, this wall of separation within the courtyard of the temple. We actually read about this, an experience that Paul had in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 21, we read that Paul had gone into the temple and he was going to perform a few um, uh, ritual services. Uh, there's a whole background to this that we don't have time to get into, but basically Paul goes into the temple, right? So then we read in verse 27 and 28, now, when seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! 
This is the man, speaking of Paul, who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law in this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks, Gentiles, into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previous, and this is the reason that is given for why they thought that he was bringing a Gentile in. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed, right, not actual matter of fact, but they thought, they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut, now as they were seeking to kill him. You see, Paul knew firsthand of the hostility of the Jews toward the Gentiles, right? That even those who thought that Paul had brought in a Gentile, which is quite interesting, they thought he brought in a a Gentile from Ephesus. Did you notice that? And of course, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Right? And they're like, well, you just, you brought one in? And they sought to kill him, right? But then Paul, you know, was arrested by the Romans and then argued his case that he, he didn't, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is something definitely as one of the literal barriers that were in place um, between the Jews and the Gentiles. But let's go back to Ephesians uh, 2 and let's look closer at verse 15, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. It's most likely that that wall of separation, although the uh, wall in the temple, in the courtyard, could have been what came to mind to Paul and to the Ephesians, Paul likens this wall of separation to these law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, To the average Adventist who reads this, sometimes they cringe and they say, oh, Paul, why do you got to, you know, always say things like, I'm against the law, right? Well, we need to put some things into perspective. Paul definitely says clearly about the law being a good thing, but elsewhere, in this instance, he talks about the law and commandments as being a barrier, a wall, something that causes hostility and enmity between Jew and Gentile. Now, before we understand, we need to first understand before we make a conclusion about what these laws and and, and, uh, commandments are, what the nature of the law was in the Old Testament scriptures. We find in the Old Testament, Testament scriptures that there is a threefold dimension to the Old Testament law. You can categorize, if you will, three different dimensions of Old Testament law. You have the civil laws, moral laws, and ceremonial laws. The civil laws were, well, let's start with the moral laws. The moral laws were primarily outlined and recorded in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. These just lay out exactly what love looked like. If you love someone, don't kill them. If you love uh, someone, uh, if you love your parents, honor them. If you love your spouse, don't commit adultery, right? If you love someone, don't steal from them. If you love God, remember his Sabbath. If you love God, don't worship other gods. You see? The moral or Ten Commandments were the foundation of all of the Old Testament law, and they were put within the Ark of the Covenant written on, uh, on stone tablets. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, carried with them no civil punishments, However, there were other laws that were given 
uh, through Moses that we sometimes refer to as the civil laws. These showed the penalties for breaking certain moral and ceremonial laws. Then we have the category of ceremonial laws. These were the laws that pertained to all of the religious sanctuary sacrifices and offerings, right? These were the laws that had to do with the cultic worship and activities of the Jewish nation, the, the, the purity laws, the clean and unclean laws, and things like that. What Paul likely had in mind was that of the ceremonial laws, certainly not that of the moral laws. Let's take a look at Colossians 2 briefly, where we see a parallel statement by Paul. In Colossians 2, verse 11 through 14, we see a very similar theme and similar language that Paul uses, uses in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Notice here in Colossians, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Just how Paul talks about circumcision in Ephesians 2.11, in Colossians 2.11, he talks about circumcision. Then he talks about, I'll skip verse uh, 12, but verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Again, the theme of being dead, right? In trespasses, dead spiritually, Christ makes alive. The same uh, theme that we see in Ephesians 2. Then we have in verse 14, Paul writes, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, looking closely here between Colossians 2 verse 14 and Ephesians 2 verse 15, we see similar language that is used. Notice, wiped out, abolished, enmity, against us, contrary to us, uh, abolished through the cross, through, nailed it to the cross, law of commandments contained in ordinances, handwriting of requirement that was against us. And when we take a look at what are these handwriting of requirements, these law of commands contained in ordinances that Paul is saying was done away with at the cross, well, let's go back to Colossians 2 and then compare that with Deuteronomy 31 verse 26. Here we read, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. You see the same language? Witness against you, against us, contrary to us. What this book of the law was, was the law of ceremonies. All of the various cultic and ceremonial prescription, prescription that the law of Moses contained. And notice this law of uh, ceremonial law was not placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant where the moral or Ten Commandment law was placed, but rather it was placed beside the Ark of the Covenant, showing that there was a distinction between the ceremonial legislation, the civil legislation, and the moral law. Now, of course, it goes without saying Many of the ceremonial and civil laws had moral components to them, but when we look back at the Old Testament Mosaic legislation, we can see that there is 
these dimensions, these categories, that when we get to the New Testament, some of those, namely the ceremonial laws, are no longer directly applicable because those were shadows that pointed to the body of Jesus when Jesus became the once and for all sacrifice for sin and offering to make atonement um, for our sins. Now, to further uh, support this understanding, we see that Paul struggled with those who continued to insist that the law of Moses and all of the ceremonial stipulations of the law of Moses had to be kept. Notice in Acts chapter 15, there was this great Jerusalem council. And during the Jerusalem council, it says in Acts 15 verse 1, that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren that unless they were to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they would not be saved. Then, a few verses later, right, a sect of the Pharisees who were also Christian, they said it is necessary to circumcise all of these new Gentile believers who have become Christians and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Whoa, this is heavy stuff, right? Paul was out preaching and doing missionary work all throughout Asia, all throughout the known world, and he's making converts to Christianity, and he's telling them, hey, you guys, you know, you no longer need Jesus is the fulfillment of, the, of these sacrificial offerings. Jesus is the lamb that was slain, and you don't need to get physically circumcised. You don't need to physically bring in an animal sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice, and circumcision is no longer that of the flesh, but that of the spirit. Now notice a few verses later, we read that Peter responds and he shares his testimony about how God led in his life and led him to preach to a group of Romans, a bunch of Gentiles, the gospel, and that the Holy Spirit came upon them who were not circumcised. And then Peter says in verse 10 of Acts uh, 15, he says, now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear, right? So Peter says, hey, look, all of those ceremonial, clean and unclean ceremonial rites and, you know, purification ceremonies and animal sacrifices, he's like, over time, those actually became a yoke, a burden that our people were not actually keeping in the best way throughout time. Furthermore, those ceremonial laws had added to them all kinds of traditional laws that the Pharisees, the ultra-right conservatives, had added to the uh, actual, uh, that had added to the law of God. They added unbiblical extra requirements, which became this added yoke and burden for the people. But Paul teaches clearly elsewhere in Romans chapter 2 that circumcision physically or uncircumcision don't matter. But what really matters is the circumcision of the heart. Notice what he says in Romans 2 verse 27. And will not the physically uncircumcised, that would be the Gentile, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is, is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one, where? 
inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul made it clear that, look, you can be circumcised or you can be uncircumcised. That no longer is relevant. That was used and had a legitimate purpose during the Old Covenant era. But now that the ceremonial law has been done away with, it doesn't matter the physical circumcision. Rather, what matters is that your heart is is circumcised, meaning that you have a humble spirit and a contrite heart willing to follow God and obey him. Notice what Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, We'll look at just verse 19. He says, well, look at verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. But what really matters is keeping the commandments of God. Here, Paul makes a clear distinction between the ceremonial legislation found in the Mosaic Covenant and the moral commands found within that covenant. He says keeping the commandments of God, the moral law, is what needs to be the focus of the Christian, not the ceremonial and cultic rituals that are no longer uh, directly applicable to God's people to keep um, literally. Notice what we uh, read here in a few commentaries. Not only do Adventists understand this distinction of 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 the law and the commandments that Paul is talking about, Uh, that were nullified in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, but even evangelical other Christian authors recognize this distinction. Notice what we read in uh, Frank Thielman's commentary uh, by Baker, uh, in his Baker exegetical commentary on Ephesians. The Paul of Ephesians did not think that Christ had set aside the need for commandments within Christianity. Nor did he think the Mosaic law had been nullified, if that word is taken to mean that the Mosaic law is no longer useful for believers. His usage of a command from the Decalogue in his ethical instruction in Ephesians, in chapter 6, is enough to demonstrate this. Notice what we see. In the book of Ephesians itself, Paul quotes from the fifth commandment. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, he says, honor your parents. He directly quotes from the fifth commandment. Then we see him, although not quoting directly from the the Ten Commandments, he makes it clear uh, that commandment 7 is still intact. We shall not commit adultery. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't lie. And we shouldn't covet. Paul clearly did not do away with the moral precepts that belonged in the Mosaic legislation. Notice uh, another quotation we read um, from Clinton Arnold. He says, The elements of the Mosaic Covenant that functioned as a barrier to the Gentiles have now been removed. Because the Mosaic Covenant is no longer in force, these are no longer an obstacle. But then he adds, We must be careful, however, not to go too far and assume that the moral content of the Mosaic Code is now irrelevant. Then we have um, Brian uh, Chapel who writes, 
commenting on this verse, the commandments referred to here with regulations are not the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but the rites of ceremony and sacrifice that made the Jews come near to the temple. When Christ offered his flesh up upon the cross, he made irrelevant for religious distinction all the ceremonies and distinctions of the flesh that separated Jew from Gentile, that made some holy and some unclean, that created hostility between the privileged and the ostracized. And then one more quotation here from the author of the quarterly itself on Tuesday's lesson. He says, the law in Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 is either the ceremonial aspects of the law that divided Jews from Gentiles, represented in Paul's complex phrase, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, or he adds, it is the whole uh, the whole Old Testament system of law as it had come to be interpreted, augmented, and misused as a wedge to distance Jews from Gentiles. Either one of these two would prove to be true. In the ceremonial law, there, were legis there was legislation that, that, that to a large extent sort of put the Gentiles there. Not permanently, but they were to be integrated at a, a more slow pace into the people of God. However, the Jews had so distorted and used these kinds of ceremonial laws to exclude and go so far as becoming really a racist nation looking down upon those outside. Okay, now that that section has been covered and the remainder of our time, we're going to look at the rest of the verses, verses 9 through 22, excuse me, 19 through 22. Paul continues on, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul says you were once not part of the people of God. You were once outside of the house of God, but now you are citizens. You see, there is no, uh, you know, new group, well, sorry, there is a new group, right? But the Gentiles become included into the citizenship of Israel. The Gentiles become included to be part of the family of God. No longer strangers, no longer foreigners. What we, what we read, uh, continuing on in verse 20, Paul says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Right? The foundation for our belief comes from the apostles and the prophets. These are two words that would aptly summarize all of the Old Testament, the prophets, and the New Testament, the apostles. The teachings of Scripture, that what was found written by Moses all the way at the beginning, and prophets and kings all throughout the Old Testament, into the New Testament, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles of Jesus, Paul himself, this is the foundation of what our, our new belief, our continued belief is. Then he adds, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus is that cornerstone of which is the foundation for the foundation. Jesus holds together all of the teachings of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and that is where we are to keep our focus on Jesus, on his teachings, on his examples, on his example, and then the teachings of the disciples and apostles that are simply always pointing us back to the teaching and life of Jesus. Then in verse 21, Paul says, in whom the whole building being fitted together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Those Gentiles that were previously excluded from access to the temple, who upon pain of death could not enter into the temple precincts. Now, Paul says, you are a temple of God. Isn't that amazing? Those who had no access to the temple of God now become the dwelling place of God. Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians and in Thessalonians that the believers of Christ become this living organism, this living temple. Then in our last verse, verse 22, he says, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God wants to dwell inside of you. When the Holy Spirit comes, he doesn't look on the exterior of people. Oh, that person's too big, that person's too small, that person's too pale, that person's too dark, that person's too whatever. Though when the Holy Spirit comes and he knocks on the door, what the Holy Spirit is looking for, who Jesus is looking for, are those who are of a contrite heart and a humble spirit. Those who say, Jesus, I am a lost sinner. I am in need of a Savior. I am in, in need of grace. Nothing good can I do on my own. Nothing good do I bring to you, but simply to the cross I cling. Those are the people that Jesus is looking for. And once you become those people, it changes the way that you treat other people. And so again, circling back to the name of this, uh, the, the title of this lesson, Horizontal Atonement. Once we've made peace with God, Paul tells us we need to make peace with others. So hopefully you've learned some new things this lesson, and I pray that you take what you've learned and apply it to your own life and share it with other people. God bless. Don't forget to request today's life-changing free resource. Not only can you receive this free gift in the mail, you can download a digital copy straight to your computer or mobile device. To get your digital copy of today's free gift, simply text the keyword on your screen to 40544 or visit the web address shown on your screen. And be sure to select the digital download option on the request page. It's now easier than ever for you to study God's Word with amazing facts wherever and whenever you want and most important, to share it with others.